When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard, about Abner, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all of Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding, band, raiding bands. One, one was named Bana and the other Rechab. They were sons of Rimon the Berathite from the tribe of Benjamin. Beeroth is considered part of Benjamin because the people of Beeroth fled to Gitam uh, and have resided there, for, there as foreigners to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan had come, to, come from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now Rechab and Barna, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went to the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Barna slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was laying on his bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut his head off. Taking it with them, they travelled all night by the way of Arabah. They brought, his head, brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king of Saul. Sorry. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. David answered Rechab and his brother Bana, the sons of Rimon, Rimon, uh, the Berathite, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead, as, he, as thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. This was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when I, how much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men, and they killed him. They cut off their hands and their feet and hung their bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took his, but they took his head, took the head of Ishbosheth, and buried it in Abner's tomb in Hebron. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, "We are we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel and their." on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had, become, had come to King, da King David at Hebron, he made, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed da David king over Israel. Well, good evening, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you. Please keep that passage open in front of you. We're going to get to that in a moment. Um, I, I just want to say, um, you guys have been away at uh, Grace Youth Camp. Um, I'm sure you have had an, an excellent time, and uh, you can just see that in the in, uh, things that have been shared. And uh, I think you guys are really blessed to have an awesome team of youth leaders I don't know whether you've had the, the opportunity to say a big thank you to them, but I reckon it'd be great to, to do that now. So let's thank our, our awesome team of youth leaders.
hopefully this hopefully they're still awake to um to to capture that uh, that that thanks and hopefully clapping your hands has, has helped you to stay awake my challenge tonight as i preach god's word is to, to help um us to to learn from this passage and i'm conscious that uh, some of you will be very tired after a big weekend so i'm going to pray again very quickly and ask god to help us will you pray with me Father God, thank you for this time now. We, we thank you for your word and ask that you'd help us to learn from it, to take to heart what you have to say to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully everyone's eyes have opened again. Uh, it's a dangerous thing praying when you're really tired. Um, well, over the recent weeks, we've seen for the first time in 70 years the changing of the British monarch. The Queen's funeral was last Monday night. Who, uh, who watched the funeral? bunch of people did. Apparently it was the most watched church service in human history. Um, I heard some number is in the billions or something of people that watched this church service and what a great service it was. It, it really was, it, it was great through the Bible readings, through the prayers, through the sermon, much of the gospel of Jesus was conveyed. Much about King Jesus which I thought was, uh, was very appropriate. And it really, it, it rang through. I mean, the, the Queen herself had put together a lot of her, her own funeral and planned that long ago, and it was a testament to her faith. Well, over recent weeks, we've also been preaching our way through to Samuel and following the changing of the monarch in ancient Israel. After King Saul's death and the establishment of David as king over God's people... We've been following it through these early chapters. Now, for us today, the, uh, the uh, changing of the British monarchy is, you know, is, is no doubt a significant event for some people. Um, I mean, it's significant enough for us to go as a public holiday. Um, obviously, for those close to the Queen, it's a hugely significant event. But for most of us, at the end of the day, a new monarch in Britain doesn't make a big difference. However, unlike us, for ancient Israel, this changing of the king was a very big deal. And the, the events surrounding it presented a, a really significant crisis for Israel. Now, just to illustrate this point, look there at the beginning of chapter 4. We read that when they heard the news of Abner's death, it says there that, uh, that all Israel became alarmed. Now, literally, that, that's kind of putting it mildly, literally, it's, uh, you, you could say all Israel were terrified. This was a distressing, unstable, threatening situation, which we're going to unpack and see why that was the case. And as we do that, we'll see the events that unfold, that as they unfold, people are trying to find their way forward in the midst of these great challenges. And in this, I think there are some parallels and lessons for us. Because even though, I mean, the place of the monarchy for us is very different from that in ancient Israel... There is still a lot about this life that, that hasn't changed. In, in many ways, life is still very hard. It's at times distressing, unstable, as I'm sure we can all testify in different ways. I mean, it's the, uh, it's the end of the school term. Many of you have been away at, uh, at youth camp over this weekend. Who's tired? And those who haven't got their hands up, that's because you're, you're too tired to raise your arm, right? Um, if you're teachers, if you're students, if you if you're uh, have just been away at um, at uh, youth camp, I'm sure you are tired. If uh, we've got parents of young children here, I mean, parents of young children, they understand tiredness in a way that, that no one else on the planet does. Um, we face stress, we face busyness, uh, sickness, pain, weakness. 
Some of us are grieving, facing relational difficulties, financial stress. On a personal level, things can be tough. I think in our culture, things are increasingly tough. There's a growing hostility. There's a, there's a rise of militant individualism and intolerance, which impacts us in all sorts of different ways. I mean, COVID over the last couple of years has impacted our social, our relational, our, our mental health in lots of ways. Across the world, things are broken. War, hostility, uncertainty, economic pressures. Now, I don't say all this to, to depress you, but just to help us to face the reality that life in this world can be tough and it can be hard to see the way forward. And yet God in his kindness shows us the way forward. He shows us in his word, in passages such as the one that we're going to look at at tonight. And there's valuable lessons here for us to learn along the way as we follow this changing of the monarch in ancient Israel. How do we find our way forward as we live life in this distressing, unstable and threatening world? Well, to recap where we're up to, um, if you haven't been following along through 2 Samuel, it's, it's helpful to understand the lie of the land. Uh, the first king of Israel, King Saul, has died. He was killed in battle. You can read that at the end of 1 Samuel. And David had long been promised by God that he would become king. And then we saw in chapter 2 that he was made king over Judah, uh, the, the southernmost tribe of Israel. But the journey for him to become king over the northern tribes of Israel has been a, a long and, and convoluted one through these chapters. Now, I'll give a quick summary with some um, slides to help illustrate the, the action. So when Saul was made king, the commander of his army was Abner. Uh, when Saul died and David was, was made king of Judah, instead of switching his allegiance to David, he, Abner appointed Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons, as a rival king over Israel. And remember at this point, Israel is referring to the whole lot. So, he, so Ishbosheth is set up as a rival to David. Now David also had a commander of his army, Joab. And so we have two rival kings and two rival commanders of armies. How will this get sorted out? Who will be king? On chapter 2, Abner and Joab seek some sort of diplomatic negotiation, but it soon turns into a bloodbath. And uh, Abner's men come off worse. In the process, Joab's brother Asahel takes on the top dog Abner, ignores his repeated warnings and ends up dead at Abner's hand, or rather at Abner's spear. Then in chapter 3, Abner sees the writing on the wall that the house of Saul is on the way out. And so he switches allegiance and acknowledges David as king and is met with grace and peace from King David. When Joab discovers this, he's furious. He takes matters into his own hands and murders Abner, in part to avenge his brother's death and also to remove what he no doubt sees as a threat to himself and to David. David doesn't want a bar of it. Uh, he's at pains to make sure everyone knows that Abner's murder was Joab's doing and, and he had nothing to do with it. And so throughout these, these early chapters of 2 Samuel, we've seen Abner, we've seen Joab take matters into their own hands. They, they seek to advance their own cause whilst David waits patiently upon the Lord, waits for God to bring in his kingdom in his timing. 
Well, this brings us to tonight's passage where we see the response of Ishbosheth and of Israel. And there's a summary of the, the, the kind of trajectory of these chapters at the start of chapter 3, where it says, 3 verse 1, David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And that's what we see play out again in chapter 4. So 4 verse 1, we read, When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel became alarmed. Now, where it says Ishbosheth lost courage, literally it says his hands failed. His hands were, were weak. We might say he, he lost his grip. He gave up. And where it says all Israel became alarmed, you could say, as the translator said before, were terrified. The commander of Saul's, uh, Saul's house, uh, Abner, he'd gone to David and now he lies dead. And they're thinking, well, what's going to happen to us? At this stage, they, they may not have known that, that David didn't have, uh, he wasn't responsible for Abner's death. And so I think terror is an understandable response. The house of Saul is becoming weaker and weaker. But then we're introduced to these two men, Baana and Rechab. Verse 2, it says, Now Saul's son, that's Ishbosheth, had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Baana, the other Rechab. They were sons of Rimon the Berethite from the tribe of Benjamin. These two are described as leaders of raiding bands, which doesn't inspire much uh, hope. Um, you might call them gang leaders, maybe bush rangers. But they are from the tribe of Benjamin, so they've got that in their favour. They're, they're from the same tribe as Saul and Ishbosheth. And so as the house of Saul grows weaker and weaker, well, we still have these two men. What will they amount to, to something? Will they be able to do anything about the house of Saul? At this point, the, uh, the story takes a, a, what seems like a, a kind of sideways detour, and we're introduced to a grandson of Saul. Verse 4, we read, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan had, uh, came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. So Saul's son, Jonathan, he had a son called Mephibosheth. And uh, he had suffered a terrible accident when he was five years old, uh, falling, becoming lame in both feet. So there's, there's Mephibosheth, there we go. Um, just as an aside, when Jenny and I, my wife Jenny and I, were expecting our first uh, child, I suggest that there was a, if, if the child was a boy, that there was a biblical precedent for the son of Jonathan to name him Mephibosheth. <laughs> for some reason, Jenny wasn't, wasn't quite so, so keen. Thanks, Ben. He said that was lame. Yep. Um, she wasn't so keen on Mephibosheth, but, um, and so we settled on James. Um, I'm not sure whether he's grateful of that fact. I mean, but, but there you are. There's a name, if you ever want to, you know, baby names, Mephibosheth. It's got lots going for it. You can abbreviate in all sorts of ways. Mephi, Fibo, uh, you know. It's, it's it... Anyway, we, we might wonder at this point, why are we introduced to Mephibosheth? Here's a theory. Perhaps it's to, to further illustrate the state of the house of Saul. I mean, what are we left with here? 
We've got a dead commander, a weak-handed king, a terrified people, two gang leaders and a lame grandson who was probably about 12 years old at this stage. The weaker and weaker house of Saul is not looking good. But we do still have these two sons of Rimmon. What are they going to do? Well, it turns out that like Abner, like Joab, they too were men of action who took matters into their own hands. They see the writing on the wall that the house of Saul is done and so what they do is that they act to secure their own position in David's coming kingdom. And what unfolds seems to be, well, it's well-planned, premeditated violence. Verse 5. Now Rechab and Baana, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, And they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Baana slipped away. Uh, they would have been trusted servants of Ishbosheth, uh, able to, to enter his house without raising any concerns. And they used their position to assassinate their king. We're given that summary version. Then a more detailed version, verse 7, says they had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they travelled all night by the way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. Here we see their motive. They act to advance David's kingdom, they think, by taking out his rival king, Ishbosheth, presumably hoping that they'll receive some kind of reward from David for being you know, so helpful to him. Notice three things. They're, firstly, their self-interest. They're, they try unsuccessfully to to secure their own position by winning the favour of the king. Secondly, notice their, their religious hypocrisy. They claim God's endorsement for their wicked actions. They say, this day the Lord has avenged my Lord the king against Saul and his offspring. They claim that they're doing God's work as they commit cold-blooded murder. Notice their godless pragmatism. Pragmatism is just you know, doing what works, whatever works, or whatever they think will work, by whatever means. I think there's a lesson here for us. I doubt that any of us have considered assassination as a good way to advance the kingdom of God. But sadly, it's not uncommon for Christians to, think, to, to, to seek to, to advance God's kingdom through immoral and disgraceful means. I mean, it's, it's tragic that the number of Christian leaders and Christian people who've done wicked things in pursuit of self-interested success and claimed God's endorsement along the way. We mustn't go the same way. We must make sure that we love righteousness much more than we love success. Well, if these, uh, these wicked assassins thought that uh, they were on the path to the king's favour, they were badly mistaken. They really should have done their homework. Because this situation is, it sounds very much like something that's come before, doesn't it? Those who've been around in chapter 1, it's very much like what uh, the Amalekite 
did when he told David of Saul's death and claimed that, that he'd had a hand in, in, he was the one to strike the final blow, thinking that David would be impressed, but presumably Rechab and Bethbana didn't know about that, otherwise they wouldn't have been so foolish. David sets them straight. Verse 9, he says, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble. Notice there, we see why is it that David doesn't take matter into his own hands. It's because he, he trusts in the Lord who delivers him. He trusts the Lord's timing. He said, verse 10, When someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? God's king upholds righteousness. And self-interested, hypocritical, pragmatic wickedness is punished by God's king. And so verse 12, so David gave an order and his men uh, to his men, and they killed him. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. King David honoured the uh, son of Saul, Ishbosheth, giving him a proper burial. But these wicked enemies of the house of Saul are brought to justice. I think the other lesson to learn here is that. Wickedness can't thwart God's kingdom. In fact, God is so sovereignly in control that he can even use the wicked acts of men like Rechab and Baana or, or those of Judas and, and those who killed Jesus. God can use their wicked acts to bring about his kingdom. I think there's great comfort for us in knowing that God's king, Jesus, he is on his throne. The opposition and wicked actions of people do nothing to threaten his sovereign rule. They do nothing to, to stop the coming of his kingdom. So what's the way forward? We've seen over these chapters the, the schemes, the efforts of different people to either oppose or to hasten the coming of God's kingdom. Abner, Joab, Asahel, Rechab, Baana. Their efforts have been unsuccessful. But God, he is the one who is bringing in his kingdom in his time and in his way. And so at last, when we get to chapter 5, we see the way forward for Israel. At last, they come to David and anoint him king over them. And I want us just to notice three little details Three details about what they say when they come before David, because this, this really illuminates the way forward for us too. As we live in this world, as, as we respond to God's King. Notice firstly there, they speak of who we are. Verse 1, they say, we are your own flesh and blood. Notice they don't say, you David are our own flesh and blood. No, they're, they're not saying you're ours. They're saying, we're yours. We are your body, your own flesh and blood. We belong to you, David. Secondly, they speak of who you are. Verse 2 says, In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. You are our saviour. You are the one who defeats 
our enemies. Thirdly, they speak of what God has promised. Verse 2 continues, And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people, Israel. You will become their ruler. God promised that David, he would be a shepherd for his people. A shepherd protects, feeds, nurtures, cares for his people. And so the people of Israel came to the king saying, We belong to you. You are our saviour. Be our shepherd. And notice the response he gives them in verse 3. It says, When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. He's king over Israel at last. But notice he made the covenant with them. He's the initiator of the covenant. He is their ruler. He is their saviour. He is their shepherd. And friends, he's a model for our response to God's ultimate king, Jesus. As we live in this broken world with its, its rival kingdoms and powers, perhaps we're, like Israel, alarmed, dismayed, even terrified, like sheep who are harassed and helpless. But we can come to God's king and we can say to him, we are your body, we belong to you, you are our saviour who defeats our, our ultimate enemies of sin and death, and God has promised that you will be our shepherd. We do face all sorts of challenges and difficulties in life, and we're not to, meant to look to ourselves and our own selfish means to secure our own advancement like Rachab and Baana did. Rather, we can look to God's true King Jesus, our Saviour, our Shepherd, the one to whom we belong. The way forward is to trust him as our king, as our saviour, as our ruler. How about we pray now? Our Lord God, our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you have installed your king on the throne, our Lord Jesus. We praise you that you are sovereign over all things, even over suffering and difficulty, even over those who oppose you. We praise you that nothing can thwart your purposes and the final coming of your kingdom. Father, as we live in this world, we pray that, that we would love righteousness more than success. We pray that you would guard us from being motivated by self-advancement. And Father, please turn our hearts to you, to the Lord Jesus, that we would say, we are your body, you are our saviour, be our shepherd. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.